Let's look again together this morning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. We'll be considering verses 10 through 17. I've already alluded to the truth that this is the, the third of four Sabbath incidents that Luke records for us. And what's notable about this one is we're not certain when this happened. Remember, Luke is not necessarily a chronological book. It doesn't happen in time, in history. But he takes these different stories, pericopes, a theological word, a seminary word, and he places them where he is in his teaching. And so again, we're reminded this morning that He's been over and over and over again in two or three chapters now calling these religious leaders to repentance. And the importance here this morning of him not telling us exactly which synagogue or when exactly this took place. He doesn't even tell us the lady's name or the ruler's name who are prominent in this discussion. I would have us to be reminded as I read this that. This story was not so much given for the woman that we see is healed this morning, but for the ruler of the synagogue and for those Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders who were legalistically approaching salvation. We'll see a similar thing with, and I always say this, when we consider uh, the parable of the prodigal son, often the prodigal gets all the press. Well, he's a prominent figure in that parable. But at the end of the day, that story is not for the prodigal. It's given to rebuke the scribes and the Pharisees, which are really represented by the elder brother in the story. He is the moral of the story, if you will. Well, this morning we see a similar thing with this ruler in the synagogue. And I'll begin reading in verse uh, 9. I'm sorry, chapter uh, verse 10 of chapter 13. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to the water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things. All of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your grace. Your mercy that showed us our need for salvation, our need to be delivered from the bondage of our sin. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 
This morning, I would draw your attention to a debate that has gone on throughout not just the history of church, but really the history of mankind. The debate, both in philosophy and theology, concerns the freedom of the will. One of the better known debates in church history on the topic was between two men, Martin Luther, the reformer, and Desiderius Erasmus, a humanist, though not in the secular humanistic sense that we think of today. Humanist just meant back to the originals, back to the way things used to be. And there's a positive thing concerning that. When it gets secularized, is the problem. Erasmus gave us our first Greek New Testament, and Luther was grateful in even the bondage of the will, which was his treatise that he wrote against Erasmus on uh, the a freedom of the will, that he remarks that. But in that treatise on the bondage of the will, Luther argued that for it to be true that man is free to act however he desires is a fallacy. There is the thinking that man must be free to act, otherwise God just creates us all as robots Puppets on strings, and we have no will or whatever. Luther would disagree with that type of fatalism, but he did say that that type of thinking, or for that type of thinking to be true, was to ignore two things. First, the freedom of God. If man is free, then God is not, would be his argument. But more pertinent to his argument in on the bondage of the will was the power of sin in and over man. For Luther, man might think that he can act freely. But to have that type of thinking is only to be deceived because that person, any man, since the fall, can only act according to his nature. Can only act according to his will. So while man might think he's freely acting, he's only doing so as an outworking of a sin nature that continually seeks to gratify and feed the flesh. In other words, he's in fact in bondage to his will of sin. That's how strong sin is. It keeps us in chains. The hymn writer put it, the day that he was saved, his chains fell off. That's exactly what he's talking about. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that burden that was on his back was lifted. That burden of sin, the moment he came to faith in Christ. I think that Luther agrees with Jesus. I think that Jesus, years before, would agree with Luther. Because what we see in our text this morning is that the power of Christ alone can set a person free from the power of sin that exists in us and that it has over us. Or as Luther would put it, only Christ by his work alone and because of his work alone can conquer our sinful wills. There are two things in this story that I want us to consider this morning. First, the the freedom of divine deliverance. The freedom of divine deliverance. We see this story of this woman who perhaps physically was in more pain 
than any person that we've encountered in the life of Jesus' ministry to this point. And in spite of that, she shows up for church on that day. Now, we don't know if this lady had been a regular uh, attender at the synagogue for these entire 18 years. We don't know if she comes on this day just because she knew that Jesus would be there. Whatever the case may be, we're not told, but she was there by God's decree on that Sabbath, on that day. And we'll consider the freedom of divine deliverance. And then secondly, the story of the ruler is the bondage of legalistic religion. Where man really is in his sin, separated from God, even though he may claim to be religious. Legalism leads to all sorts of errors. And we'll consider a couple of those this morning. So first, the freedom of divine deliverance. And we note immediately in verse 11 that there was a need for deliverance. We see in verse 11 how destitute this woman was. This disabling spirit that she had that that literally had her bending over in her back. This deformity in her, the woman appeared while Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. Bent over, not able to straighten her back. Some years ago, I was uh, on a mission trip in Kiev, Ukraine. And it was said, I've not followed it up, I don't know if it be true or not, but it seems to make sense to me medically that a number of the senior saints or older mature women, each and every morning you could see them out sweeping leaves. I was there in October, it was fall, and they were sweeping leaves and making clear the, the, the sidewalks and such. And almost to a woman, they would be what I would call hunchbacked, that they were bent over kind of sideways and It's attributed to them having a calcium deficiency throughout their life and a bone uh, deficiency, if you will, that, that caused that. Some type of osteoporosis. What this woman had is much worse on many levels than even that. She had been diagnosed by some as having a deformed spine in which the bones had literally fused together in her spine into a single rigid mass. In other words, she could not even stand up straight. It wasn't a muscular problem. It wasn't a problem with ligaments or tendons. It it was literally her bones had fused together. And that was her predicament. It forced her to stoop over when she walked. And Luke tells us that she'd been inflicted with this infirmity for Eighteen plus years. And we don't know how the lady was. Again, the Bible is silent. And by the way, Luke's the only one that gives this account. It could have certainly and would have certainly been at the very least a very shameful condition for her. Probably exceedingly painful. But even worse for her was that this physical ailment had a source. And we see that in verse 16. Jesus said that Satan had bound her in this disease. It wasn't that Satan possessed the woman. 
We, we don't see Jesus doing an exorcism or casting out an evil spirit like we've seen in the past. We just, he heals her physical condition. However, he attributes that physical condition to being the work of the evil one. Much like we read in Job's encounter with Satan. You remember that God gave, uh, actually he sent Satan to consider his servant Job. And he said, you can do this, 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 and this, only you can't do this. And the second round of this was, was you can, you can cause him great physical disturbance. You can do almost anything to him physically, you just can't take his life. This is where this woman might have been. We know that it was brought about by Satan, and Satan's always on God's leash, although that leash might seem longer at times than others. God is still in control of all things, even these types of things. So, we see here that this woman's in this predicament. I want to add that this does not mean that it was because of the woman's sin. Some would naturally attribute it, well, if Satan's behind it, then it must be God's punishment for her sin, and the suffering that she's going through is for sin. It might have been. We're just not told. All suffering cannot be directly attributed to sin. Sometimes God allows suffering to strengthen us. Sometimes it's to show his own glory. Sometimes it's to test our faith so that the dross is removed and we're more purified. Suffering comes in all sorts of different ways, different places at different times. What we do know is this lady was suffering tremendously because of this physical ailment. The Jews, however, would have immediately attributed it to it being sin. We've seen that over the past weeks. So what we see in this woman was there was no pill, there there was no surgical procedure then or even now that could heal her. It would take someone or something more powerful than not just her physical ailment, but more powerful than Satan himself. Only that power could break the bonds that kept her crippled, kept her deformed, kept her paralyzed in that condition. So we see her need to be delivered, not just from the physical ailment, but from the bonds and bounds of Satan himself. But then we see the work of deliverance. She needed to be delivered, and she was. It's too much to say that she came to church for that reason that day. We simply don't know. We just have the story that she was there, whether it was because she knew Jesus was there or not, whether it was a normal Sabbath occasion for her. We simply don't know. What we do know is what Jesus did when he saw her. Jesus took the initiative. He's the one that began the entire process, whether she was looking for it or not. The the, the text is very clear in verse 12 that when Jesus first saw her. Now, it may not have been difficult for her to stick out in the crowd. But at the end of the day, she could have been coming to every Sabbath for many years. Again, the text is just silent. She could have been ignored by the religious leaders every time she showed up for Sabbath. 
And it would not be unusual for them to do so on two levels. First, she was a woman. And secondly, she was had this severe abnormality. In other words, the religious leaders would have kept her at arm's length. So it could have been that she came, as we're told in a moment, as a daughter of Abraham. She is a Jew coming to celebrate the Sabbath, and she's been simply ignored. No one saw her except Jesus on that day. And seeing her, it's certainly implied in the passage that he had compassion for her. That he was struck to the very core of his being for her. And so in seeing her, notice what happens next. He summoned her. He called her over to him. And again, the implication is she obeyed. She came to him. Jesus saw her and he summoned her. He had compassion on her and she came to him. And then what did he do? He healed her. He healed her. He first speaks. He says, you're freed from your disability. Now, there's debate here. Was she free at that point or did the freedom come when he laid his hands on her? Did they get the order wrong? If you want to get stuck on that, get stuck on that. What we need to get stuck on is she was free. Jesus spoke and he followed it by an action. The action could have been to demonstrate his approval of her freedom. He was touching a woman, which would have gone all against the norms and the mores of that society. She had that disease. He was touching a diseased woman. And now there was no evidence. We see immediately that the disease was there because as he laid her hands on her, immediately she was made straight. She didn't go home halfway healed and get some bed rest. And a week later, it took care of itself. So the physical action of teaching, of of touching Probably was so that all the crowds could see how powerful the touch and the word of Christ is. No one anywhere throughout the 18 years of this woman's ailment had been able to do one single solitary thing for her. Nor had they even tried. Jesus saw her. May I suggest to you today that This woman's condition is a picture of all of us. We may not have a spine that has bones fused together that has us deformed and paralyzed to where it's even difficult to walk. But we are paralyzed by our sin. We're in bondage to our sin. We have the same desperate need that this woman had to be delivered. Don't miss this. And if you're a believer this morning, it's because Jesus saw you. Even before the foundation of the world, He saw you. But especially, I would say, in time, as He hung on the cross of Calvary, when they were screaming at Him, if you are the King of the Jews, come down and save yourself. Why did He stay on the cross? It was to obey the will of his father, 
But it was also to demonstrate his love for you. You see, had he come down off that cross, no man anywhere, anytime could or would have been delivered from the bondage and the chains of sin. All of us would remain under the wrath of God forever. Desperate and in bondage and in our chains. He called and she responded. He called and she came. He called and he set her free from her chains. It's a picture of what happens to all who come to faith in Christ. But then notice the effect of the deliverance. She needed to be delivered. We see the work of the deliverer, Jesus himself. Notice the effect. Immediately she stood up straight and it says in verse 13, she glorified God. She glorified God. This, in fact, is the only activity that we see that's directly associated to the woman. It's the only verb given to her. Again, it's implied that she heard. It's implied that she came. But here, the only thing that's directly active in her is she glorified him. And when did she glorify him? It was only after she had been delivered from her misery. You see, prior to that freedom, she not only would not have glorified God, she could not have glorified God. But the moment the burden was removed, the moment she was set free, the moment the chains fell off, she glorified. And that is the response and the action of every single person that comes to faith in Jesus Christ and has their sins forgiven. Once that burden and bondage is removed, they no longer see their desperate condition, but they see their condition in Christ and in Christ alone. Only Christ had the power to speak and to touch and to heal this woman and to deliver her. And the same is true for us. Left to ourselves, people may pass by every day. Left to ourselves, we would not and we could not come to Jesus. When he comes to us and he calls and we come, there is salvation. That is the glorious truth of divine deliverance. And for that, there should have been a great celebration at church that day. But there was not. And the reason there was not is because the leader, the ruler, didn't see it that way. Which leads us to the second part of this text. A a direct contrast to the glory of divine deliverance or the freedom of divine deliverance. We see the bondage of legalistic religion beginning in verse 14. Now, again, this is the third Sabbath event in Luke's gospel. Lord willing, in a few weeks in 14, we'll see the fourth and final of those. But as we read earlier, the, the, the first of those Sabbath events was more about his disciples and doing work 
on the Sabbath day. The second was in the synagogue, again, directly related to a healing event. And there Jesus told them in verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? In other words, which is more merciful? Which is more obedience? Which is more in the spirit of the law? Would it be to, oh, it's the seventh day, I have to do no work and set it apart and and be very legalistic in my approach and not see the, the real needs of real hurting people that need to be delivered from the bondage of their sin? Or would it be better, in God's grand scheme of things, to touch them? To meet them at the place of their greatest need. And so what legalistic religion does, the reason there's a bondage, first of all, we see in verse 14, is is it twists and it manipulates and it distorts God's word. It it falls short of or it goes beyond, in many, many occasions, typically going beyond what is written. Notice in verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now, let me let me interject something there. The, the source of his indignation, the reason that he was angry, was probably because he looked at Jesus as somehow usurping his authority. You see, the ruler of the synagogue, wherever the synagogue was, in whatever town, the ruler of the synagogue would be the one that was in charge of getting the pulpit filled on Sunday. Saturday for them, but they were responsible for whoever came in and taught. Not only were they responsible for who taught, but then they were responsible for what was taught and what was done. And Jesus had just flipped the law over on its head. And so what appears to be cowardice to us, because he doesn't rebuke Jesus, he doesn't look at Jesus and say, Oh, you did this on the set. What does he, who does he address? The people. Because the people would have seen what had just taken place. And so, indignant because Jesus is healed on the Sabbath, he said to the people. And here's what he says. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Now, let me just say, he began... Absolutely correctly. And this is where legalism usually is. It starts right and somewhere it runs afoul. He says there are six days in which work ought to be done. That is the fourth commandment. As given in Exodus 20 verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is within your gates. That's pretty comprehensive. Here's the key. Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see, the Sabbath day is not just for a day of rest. It is that. God in his goodness understood that if he didn't 
give us something to go by that we would work ourselves to the bone. But it's also a time to celebrate the creative work of God. This ruler and all like him had missed that primary purpose of the Sabbath. To celebrate the creative work of God. He he takes the command and he twists it. There's six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Make an appointment, if you will. Schedule the time with the doctor on those six days, but don't come on the Sabbath. Well, first of all, that would be to ignore the fact that Jesus had not been there the prior six days, and he wasn't going to be there the next six. Secondly, he didn't know that she hadn't come on those days, because she had been totally ignored along the way, both because she was a woman and because of her condition. But third, and probably the worst, it's not what God meant in giving the Sabbath for man by the way of creation. You see, I read Exodus chapter 20, but the Sabbath was not given in Exodus chapter 20. In fact, you can read in Exodus chapter 16 that they had been celebrating the Sabbath. That's before it was codified on the two tablets of stone. But more than that, it was a creation ordinance. It was given because God created in six days and he wanted man to stop on the seventh and step back and see all of his creative work and worship him on that day. And so, they had kept the Sabbath, presumably before they were in Egypt. They didn't keep the Sabbath while they were in bondage in Egypt, hold on to that. And the reason they wanted to be delivered from bondage was because God told them so that they could go and worship Him and the Sabbath would once again be restored. You see, the Sabbath is given alongside freedom. It was never celebrated in bondage while they were in Egypt. Dale Ralph Davis, uh, used to be an Old Testament professor at RTS, put it this way. He said, we should remember the broad background, the Old Testament Sabbath, was a day of freedom. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, they never had a Sabbath. Slaves don't get Sabbaths. Only after Yahweh sets them free from bondage do they get to enjoy Sabbaths. Sabbaths are a privilege of a free people, and so a sense of freedom should always mark them. Unquote. How does that fit with the first part of what I proclaimed in this sermon? The freedom of divine deliverance. We could go so far as to say the only person present that day that we know could accurately celebrate the Sabbath was that woman. After she had been delivered and set free from her bondage. Because Sabbath is for free people, not those in bondage. And the ruler of this synagogue and all of those within his hearing distance remained in bondage. Not physical bondage, but bondage to their sin. And so, rather than indirectly rebuking Jesus and demanding the people to keep the Sabbath, this ruler should have recognized that they were in fact keeping it according to the spirit of the law. 
that it was a time of freedom and that Jesus had not broken it. What better day to set people free from their bondage of sin than the Sabbath? What better day to celebrate a new creation than on the Sabbath? What better place to witness such things than gather together with the people of God on the Sabbath? So this is the beginning of Jesus reasoning with them. The ruler of the synagogue was indignant. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Now that's plural. It's not just speaking to the ruler, but all of, of those who were under his influence of teaching. You hypocrites. And here's where he begins to unveil a second part of the problem of legalism. It just doesn't um, twist and distort God's word, but it applies God's word inconsistently. He rebuked them and reasons with these things. Verse 15. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? He points out how careful they were to care for their beasts. He points out how how critical it was for them to make sure that their animals received nourishment. Legalistically so. They had laws upon laws upon laws in order that they did not break the Sabbath, but they should somehow take care of their beasts and still keep the Sabbath. According to the added laws of Judaism, these are not in the Word of God, but the, and this is what legalism does. It gives laws and more laws to help protect a person from breaking the law. Unfortunately, those laws upon laws often lead people to breaking the law. These, according to their own writings, were like this. The animals could be led out by a chain or something like it as long as nothing was carried. Because, see, to carry something would be what? Work. That would be to break the commandment. But you could lead your animal out by rope or a chain or whatever, and... Water could be drawn for them and poured into a trough, though it could not be poured into a bucket and held for the animal to drink, because to hold the bucket for the animal would be what? Work. You see how ridiculous these things can be. Listen, you can see it borne out in Muslim nations where they fear that they are offending a God, Allah, if they don't keep certain Silly laws, I mean, from, from steps that they're to count to, it just, it goes on and on and on. That's what was happening here. So Jesus continues in his reasoning. He says, look, you've got all these laws to take care of your animals and not break the Sabbath. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years. Now stop, because... <laughs> There's some there that really go to seed on the daughter of Abraham. 
Well, that means that it's a spiritual daughter of Abraham, and it's, it's a, it's, it's, she's part of the church, and then it's, well, no, she's, she's just a promise, she's in the promise of the old covenant woman, and on and on and on they go. When at the end of the day, all that Jesus is trying to do here is say, your animals are more important than your own sister. Your animals are more important than your own flesh and blood. Your animals are more important than this Jew, who is a daughter of Abraham, by seed, by right, physical. It could have the spiritual application. But here he's just saying, she's your sister. And you care more for your ox or your donkey than you do for her. She's been bound for 18 years. And you get more excited about leading your ox to get water by a rope and somehow satisfying God, and yet pass right by this woman who needs to be loosed? He says, look at the lengths you go to in caring for your beast, all the while keeping them in bondage. How much more should you celebrate your sister who's been delivered from hers? This is why they were hypocrites. Their legalistic works approach to religion had blinded them to their own greatest need. It had blinded them to their need to be delivered. Again, not from a physical infirmity, but from their sin. And they failed to see that it was only by God's grace and the power of Christ that they could be delivered. So what does this mean for us? Well, I brought one point out already that this woman's debilitating condition is a picture of the paralyzing and debilitating effects that evil have on us. And just like in this story, only Christ alone can overcome the power of Satan and sin. It's not your obedience to the law. That saves no one. The law curses. Christ saves. Good works will be evidence of your salvation. But it is not your salvation. You don't do good works to be saved. You do good works because you are saved. You seek to honor and delight and obey the Lord Not to stay in good standing with Him, because we still fall miserably short, even as saved sinners. We're saved by grace, and we stay saved by grace. Amen? He keeps us, if you will. So this woman's condition serves as a picture of that. Is it possible that You're present this morning and you've got just enough religion to think you're okay. Whether it be your church attendance or your giving or whatever actions you may be going through to satisfy yourself. That you're okay. Are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in your works? Secondly. Any religion that ignores those in need is worthless religion. Period. Anybody that ignores a person in need 
is worthless in their religion. Jesus saw the woman and he acted. And I ask a question this morning. What keeps you, what keeps me, what keeps us from seeing those in need? Because we pass by them every day. God sends them to us every day. Just like this lady showed up on this Sabbath. You don't have to pray that God would send somebody to you to invest your life in. They're already there. I promise you. What keeps us from seeing them was when we become focused on ourselves and not the needs of others. It could be we get so focused on our education. And listen, your education is important if you're in school. Hi, children. Don't hear me say you don't need to go to school. It's worthless. What I'm saying is you can get so focused on your education and so narrow that all of the needs of people are out here. You can get so focused on your job or your work and pour your life into it. And again, don't misunderstand me. A good servant is an obedience to his master. You need to be thankful that God gives you work. But if you are a workaholic, I can assure you that you've got people all around you that could use you, that need you, and you become so focused on yourself that you don't see them. It might be your family. Ouch. Right? We can become so consumed. And listen, again, God commands you men, husbands, fathers, to take care of your children. You are to be the leader. You are the one that will provide both, both earthly things as well as the spiritual things for your family. But you can become so consumed with satisfying and, and focused on the family that you miss all of those that God is sending your way. Sometimes your church can blind you. Sometimes your pastor is blinded. Sometimes I can get so consumed with my work, great calling and shepherding the flock, that I'm not really shepherding the flock. I'm growing in my understanding of God's Word. That's important to shepherd the flock. But if I just lock myself in an office downstairs with all my books around me and I never come out, I get so focused, you see. And before you know it, your work's taken over. Your family's taken over. Your, your education's taken over. Whatever it might be. These are good things that are given to us by God. And yet, because of sin, we abuse the good things of God. And at the end of the day, we end up profaning Him with them rather than serving Him. As good stewards with those things. James said in James 1.27... Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Now, hold on, because isn't that what we would want? We don't want to be like that religious ruler in the synagogue. His, his was defiled. James says, religion that is pure, not worthless, and undefiled before God the Father is this. To go to seminary... Study for 18 years, have Ph.D. degrees on your wall. Again, those things might be good, but that's not what he says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, let me be the first to say, yeah, you may have heard many sermons preached in orphan care on this verse. 
And you walk away thinking, well, I'm either not a believer or I'm a lesser believer because I don't have children in my home and I'm not giving millions of dollars to the Alabama Baptist Children's Home, whatever it might be. Let the Lord lead you in that, whatever you want to do. But the widows are never dealt with. There's two parts of this. And the overall scope of this is go back to Old Testament teaching. It's to deal with the fatherless. It's to deal with those who are in need from the aspects of society. You are to care for them. You recall that the first diaconate came into being. Why? Because there was a group of what? Widows that were not being cared for. What would reestablish true religion in the church? To take care of those widows. It's more than that. Don't misunderstand. There's doctrinal things that we must understand and we must know. But if we don't practice what we know, our religion's worthless. Religion is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. I won't read it this morning. I'll ask you on your own. Consider Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. If you don't know what those verses are, it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. One group thought they were saved. The other ones, Jesus said, were saved. The ones that thought they were saved because of the works they thought they were doing, He said, depart from me, I never knew you. The ones who had humbly done the work that they'd been called to do, in going to the prisons and taking care of the orphans and all of these things that demonstrate true religion that's undefiled. Today, he says, you are mine. And we consider that when we look at this text. Many of you this morning grew up in legalism. Right? Some of you here come from typical Southern Baptist backgrounds. You probably grew up in legalism. Some of you come from independent Baptist backgrounds where there's really some legalisms there for sure. Some come from a Church of Christ background. Don't get much more legalistic than those guys, unless you're Southern Baptist. (laughs) All of us have been in those waters, if you will. Please hear the danger. Legalism keeps you in bondage, not in freedom. That was the problem with the Jews. It's the problem that still exists today. God wants us to be free. In fact, He says it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Galatians 5.1 There's no need to be in bondage anymore. Cry out to Him today. Let's pray. Father, help us this day to plead the Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to how we're affected, not just by legalistic teachings, but, Father, how we're bombarded by the darkness and things of the world. And, Father, help us to stand firm on Your Word. But, Father, let us make sure that we're standing firm on Your Word. May we not go beyond... What is written, may we not fall short of what is written. Help us to know, help us to understand, and help us to live. Because that is the only way that we can truly 
glorify you. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.